You might be surprised to hear this, but if there is any one heresy condemned by the church that I'm actually the most tempted to believe, it's this one, apokatastasis. Okay. Now, um, we're not going to do a Greek quiz after Mass today, but this Greek word, apokatastasis, appears only once in the Bible in Acts chapter 3, verse 21 talking about Jesus after his ascension. He must remain in heaven until the restoration, apokatastasis, of all things. Now, throughout Christian history, this verse has been used to say that since in the incarnation, Jesus comes to save all of humanity, in the end, some way, somehow, everyone is going to be saved, without exception. This concept of universal salvation I obviously want to believe in, for entirely selfish reasons. I don't like the idea of me or anyone I love going to hell for eternity. I don't like it at all. The ancient Christian writer Origen is credited with the most extensive treatment of this idea in the first centuries of the church. And this old idea has certainly emerged, although not without various nuances, again in our own time. Even many practicing Christians don't see how to square the goodness of God with the possibility of something like eternal punishment. Yet the Catholic Church has always consistently condemned universalism as a heresy. She expresses her confidence in God's mercy beyond anything we can see on this earth, and at the same time claims that there is indeed a hell even if none of us here can say if anyone is there and what their names are. That can be known only to God. Hell exists and people may go there is not the center of the Christian message. It's not. But there are some Christians who seem to be awfully trigger-happy at telling you who they think will or should go there. I think we're going to have a lot of surprises when we get up there. The center of the Christian message is God is love, and that we can, through grace, become like God. But where does this idea even come from? As much as I wish it were not the case, and as much as I would like to think that Origen was onto something, the fact is that the divinely revealed Word of God, definitively interpreted by the teaching authority of the church through her tradition, is rooted in the words of the King that Jesus uses in the parable. The King said to his servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him out into the darkness where there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Many are called, but few are chosen. 
Now, it's a small word. It's a tiny word. There's not a lot of letters in the word. But this word, many, presents a unique problem in the biblical languages. Hebrew doesn't really have this great distinction between all, the vast multitudes, and the many in the same way that Greek or Latin or English does. The sense here is that the word many is more all, in which case all are called, but few are chosen. It's a reminder that there is a universal call to holiness. But the elect are those who have persevered to the end in grace. That same translation issue, by the way, is present in the consecration of the chalice at Mass. You know, we heard those words our entire lives going to Mass, right? This is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, some of you may remember, though, from 1970 until 2011, the English translation of the Roman Missal said all instead of many basing itself on an interpretation of the potential Hebrew or Aramaic used by Jesus at the Last Supper. But the church insisted that the English translation be brought into conformity with the Latin text of the Missal, which translates the Greek. And that's why we get many instead of all, neither of which quite mean what we think they mean in English. Okay? I don't make the rules, right? So I don't translate the liturgical text. I just try to explain them because I know a lot of people really begin to freak out about this. They're like, wait, 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 hold up. That's a, that's a very different thing. Well, yes, but no, okay? Either way, Matthew chapter 22 presents the figure of a king who gives a wedding feast for his son. He has a guest list, but the guests who got a personal invite from the king's servants don't come. A second time, some of the invitees just go back home or to work or don't come, and then the rest actually kill the messengers. So the guest list is scrapped, and the king tells the servants who are left to gather whomever they can and invite them. Can you imagine being one of those servants? You've just seen all of your fellow servants just get killed. It's like, oh, by the way, I want you to go do this. Ooh. But then lots of people come. But even there, there's still one man who comes without the proper wedding garment on. And he's cast out. This passage has several applications to it. First of all, to the time in which Jesus is speaking. The chosen people was the Father's guest list. He sent the prophets as messengers to them to proclaim how they could gain eternal life in heaven. But time and time again, many of them ignored the messenger or turn their backs on the message to go back to their lives as they were before this encounter with the truth of the Word of God. And so God reworks the guest list 
and extends the invitation to the Gentiles, to everyone. And many come. But even there, there are those who don't come as they should to God. The church is the kingdom hall full of people. But even being in the church doesn't mean that if you show up without your wedding garment on, you can just sit down and eat with everyone else at the banquet. The church recognizes that many people reject the message of the gospel proclaimed by the servants of Christ, the church. Some people just ignore it or go back to their lives as if Jesus Christ did not exist. And some even make martyrs of the messengers sent to them. The wedding garment is the baptismal robe of innocence. You have to have the baptismal robe on if you're to be granted admittance into the kingdom hall, right? And it has to be clean and pure when you come to the feast, okay? which means two things. First of all, that to be granted entrance into heaven, that baptismal robe has to be as clean as it was on the day of your baptism. So either you can't commit a sin after baptism, good luck with that, right? I speak from personal experience, right? or it has to be remitted by that renewal of baptism in us, by the sacrament of confession, by sorrow for our sins, forgiveness, pardon, and peace that are given through the sacrament of confession, and the wounds left behind purified by purgatory. Second of all, the Eucharist is the anticipation under sign and symbol of the wedding feast of heaven, which is why souls in the state of mortal sin, those whose baptismal garment is not as dazzling white as it was when it was received, can't sit down and eat at the table in the kingdom hall. The fact that the king throws the guy out and sends him to a place of weeping and wailing should cause us to pause before we try to make a sacrilegious communion. We should never come to the communion rail just because everybody's getting up and it's a freebie, right? We literally take not our own life into our own hands, but the author of life into our own bodies at communion. We should never do that lightly. The church presents her children with this passage in the month of October, which is right before we get to the month of all saints and all souls. It is useful for us from time to time to be reminded of the last things, judgment, hell, purgatory, and heaven. We can't allow sentimentality and what we wish were the case to govern what we believe about these spiritual realities. The Word of God is living and effective, and the church presents that Word before us to encourage us to embrace the truth about the meaning of the choices we make with our free will. If we do this, 
and persevere until the end with a crown of righteousness upon our heads and our wedding garment ready. When the day comes, we will be able to say with the prophet Isaiah, Behold our God, to whom we looked to save us. This is the Lord for whom we looked. Let us rejoice and be glad that he has saved us.